This is the Cop Thing Podcast, where we answer the question, why do the police do what they do? I'm the host, Brian Casey. Today, my guest is Chad Malmberg. Um, Chad and I work at the same police department. He is an expert on uh, what I might think of as defensive tactics. What, what phrase do we use these days? Defensive tactics work. Um, sometimes people call it response to resistance and aggression. Other people call it combatives training. There's plenty of different uh, ways to phrase it, but I like defensive tactics as well. I think it's. I think the ta- the phrase should be how to not fight like you're drunk in a bar. And that's a, that would be good. Yeah, <laughs> we could maybe coin that. <laughs> oh man, I tell you, when I was a new police officer, I had been in you know fights before, but sure. not as a cop. And then uh, I remember the first time I went hands on. It was just just doing battle, I guess. I don't know, forgot everything I was taught or didn't think it would apply in this situation. Yeah. But it was in, immensely informative. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good a way to put it. Is in, it that you learn, moment, in that moment, okay, okay, next time, this and that. Yeah, so. you learn a lot and it gets stored away for uh, another time. <laughs> there is, um, I thought, what would you, I'd like you and I talk about, if it holds your interest, is, uh, I'm going to give you a chance to explain your military background as well, but... Talk about some of the uh, contrast and compare being a police officer versus being a soldier. Yeah, a lot of people make uh, maybe a lot of civilians or on inf- people that aren't don't experience either. I think there's a lot more in common than there may actually be, or yeah, or that. So I thought we'd talk about that um, before we got into that. Though I wanted to ask you a couple things. Um, Mostly just get a sense about who you are is what did you do right after high school, for example? Yeah, so I, I'm, uh, as soon as I graduated high school that, that summer, I enlisted in the Army and I headed off for uh, basic training. I went to infantry training, airborne school, and was assigned to the 82nd Airborne as a U.S. Army paratrooper. I'm reminded of it by this ashtray you've got sitting in front of me here. He said this is a family heirloom. That was so, my father who was yeah. in the 82nd Airborne. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, there's, I'm teaching a course right now, actually, that's got a guy who served in the 82nd the same time that I was there. So it's a small world. Um, but uh, that experience, that time of my life is something that has definitely molded me and kind of forever changed who I am. So it's really... Uh, Probably that that three years was as life changing as any other period of my life. Well, I, that's not actually surprising to hear. I'm not, I, I I haven't do have no military background. It never occurred to me for some reason. It made a lot of sense to me now, but um, I, I'm not surprised that it was super impactful because I don't know if that's not the word you use necessary, but um, you were. In firefights, you were uh, really in uh, in battle. Yeah, and the the that type of experience, that combat experience, didn't occur while I was with the 82nd for that first three years of my military service. Um, as a matter of fact, I I was very uh, kind of I guess lucky, or I don't know what you want to call it, but uh, the time that I spent there. It was, it was rare for somebody to spend three years with that unit and not go to combat. I arrived and was assigned to the 1st uh, of the 325 Battalion right after they had returned from a deployment to Egypt. And right as I was transitioning out, um, units were deploying uh, overseas to Kosovo to combat. So I never experienced um, combat until many years later, 
but that time was so impactful for me. Um, coming out of high school, I didn't really have a plan. Uh, I was kind of, uh, you know, a lot of people were going on to college. I wasn't very motivated. I wasn't doing so good in school. And the army was just kind of this checkbox. You know, I, I remember talking to a recruiter and being influenced by friends and family and feeling like I needed to have something after high school. I didn't have a career lined up, nothing like that. And the army was kind of a good um, placeholder, so to speak, on what exactly it was I was going to do with the rest of my life. And then, you know, upon arriving <laughs> and uh, going through basic training and um, leading up to being being uh, assigned to that unit with the 82nd Airborne, I realized that I was really in for something. <laughs> and through that process, I learned that I could push myself a lot harder than what I thought. You know, I learned about uh, a subculture of people that are not unlike family, you know, that uh, are there, um, you know, and that, that you um, experience hardships with and, and, you know, not unlike being a police officer as well. Hmm. But that, that time was very, very influential. And I think the things that I do, at least the, the uh, attributes that, um, that I think uh, I'm proud of, a lot of that stuff is linked to that military service. Well, and then, and then, then those were those three years, but in 2005, you were in Iraq. That's right. And that, there's an event that took place there that resulted in you getting the Silver Star. That's correct. Can you just tell us a, just a brief overview of that and, and maybe sure. to where people can go if they want to hear more about that? Yeah, so I was, uh, I was in Iraq. I, after the 82nd Airborne, I moved on to the Minnesota National Guard and went to college, like a lot of people do, continued my service and, and um, just planned on on uh, getting through college. Um, uh, the the uh, unit that I was with, or the unit that I had previously been with was deploying to Iraq. I volunteered to um, go back to that unit. They needed bodies to go overseas. And I felt like that was something that was missing, you know, spending that time in a special operations unit and then um, all that time of service with the Minnesota Guard uh, just sort of narrowly missing combat deployments. I felt like it was time. So I, I deployed 2005 to 2007. It was a 22 month span. And the event that led up to that being awarded the Silver Star was a sustained firefight that was about an hour long. Uh, we fought against this uh, enemy force known as the GSO Mahdi. Uh, it was a, a insurgent group that was over there. It was a massive firefight. We were outnumbered something like 10 to 1, and we did exceptionally well. We didn't lose a single American soldier. I was a convoy commander. Um, the team that I was leading uh, was 15 men besides myself, and we didn't have a, a single serious injury. Um, we killed something like 30 to 40 enemy. We don't know exactly, but uh, it was an intense battle. And the result was uh, me being awarded a silver star and becoming the most decorated soldier in the Minnesota Guard since World War II. Wow, um, that's very impressive. I don't want to just move on without giving people a chance to. How could they? Where would they go to if they want to hear more of the details of that? Well, there's information available online. You could definitely do a Google search. As far as um, just Google search your name. I yeah, think. yeah, you could definitely do that. 
and find some information. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the stuff that you'll see out there, you'll get a good kind of overview, but a lot of the information is not 100% accurate. Um, but there's some stuff out there. I, you know, hopefully someday I'll get around to, to finishing a book. I kind of started on, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm jealous actually, or I don't know what the word is, envious or um, impressed that you've got a, a book published. I began working on one many years ago and, and uh, I haven't gotten much further than that. So hopefully someday I'll be able to put things down on paper in a much better way. Well, I know the editor and chief of uh, Alley Light Press, and All right. she can help you with that. That sounds great. Um, and I hope you do do that. Yeah, there's a lot of suffering involved, but you know a thing or two about suffering. This is a different kind of suffering, I guess, yeah. in the book. So good. Um, so we'll just move on from that, not okay. to under, understate it at all. But uh, in fact, I don't, I don't know how to talk about that in a short period anyway. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? But uh, what about, thank you. and then, uh, then when did you become a police officer? So I became a police officer in 2009. Yeah, I followed in my father's footsteps and, and my uncle, my father's brother, they were both uh, St. Paul police officers. Huh. So that was something that ever since I was a little kid, it was something that, you know, was a goal of mine. And uh, through the twists and turns, I, I, there were times where I was thinking there's no way that that's going to be the path, but it's funny how things come full, full circle sometimes. When you were a little boy, did you think you were going to be a police Oh, officer? absolutely. I knew I was. Now, have you seen this like I have? You're on patrol. You're driving down the street, mm -hmm. and a little boy and a crowd of kids, and one little boy will stop and stare and watch you go by. Oh, yeah. And I always think, that's me. That's what yeah, I was. That's right. Cops. Well, yeah. They it's children. They were just... It's incredible. Even even in this day and age where you see kind of the negative media stuff sometimes, we still have an impact, a profound impact on kids, and it's really something special. That, that's a good point, because sometimes when I see the stories about children that emulate police officers and want to be police officers, I think, you know, in some ways they're actually in some ways stronger oh, yeah. drive, because uh, when I was a child, there was... It was, you know, that, that, was, that was a common pursuit or a common interest, and no one was ashamed of that or whatever. Yeah. So um, hearing you talk, knowing a little bit about you, uh, speaking about new police officers, it, it makes you aware that of the incredible range of experiences cops come to being cops with. Oh, yeah. Everywhere from never being punched in the nose to hour-long firefights, you know, yeah. uh, just that range of experience. And I even think, I don't know if your dad your, or uncle were vets, but uh, even when I started ambulance work a long time ago, there were a lot of uh, Vietnam vets still working. And yeah. such. So uh, I always think that it's just remarkable. And I think cops can come to this job without, without that experience and be excellent cops. Absolutely. A, a range of experience from working in all kinds of different careers and mm -hmm. experiences. But all right, well, let's talk a little bit about how you view the difference, what are some, maybe some myths maybe about the, the parallels? Well, I can tell you one thing before we get into that, on, on the drive here, I had a little bit of anxiety and it's because of the parallels of the police and the military culture. Cause I'm thinking if I make one little verbal misstep, which we've probably made half a dozen or so, then I'm going to hear about it and I'm going to get flack, whether it's my you know, cop buddies or whether it's guys that I served with. So that's one thing that's definitely, uh, that's definitely a parallel. But something that you kind of already alluded to is people, I think generally people believe that 
that uh, service members make great cops. And I think generally speaking, that's true. But I also think that it's it creates um, a challenge as well. Because I, I remember, and I've seen this with other, you know, working with the academies and whatnot, I've seen this with other uh, soldiers and, and service members in general, where there's this kind of like rigid way of thinking. You know, it's it's different. That's one of the things that really separates police and the military sometimes is the the police are very good at um, applying laws, policy, procedures under different circumstances. They're much more, I think, more adaptable. And there's probably cops that would laugh at that and say that's not the case. But when yeah, you compare those are state it, troopers. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and especially when you compare it to the military, I think that that holds true. And we're, of course, we're speaking in, in generalities because you've got... I, and I remember this was a lesson from my father that police officers are as diverse as anyone else. We like to, we put ourselves in a box and the public definitely likes to do that, but it's such a diverse group of people and soldiers are the same way. I, I think that's a really fair thing to say that maybe you were, maybe I can rephrase it this way, that we shouldn't make the automatic assumption that just because you're a soldier, you're going to be a great cop compared to someone that come that that was tried to teach, taught high school for a while or did something else. Absolutely. That's a, I think that's very fair. And as far as making mistakes, I think that's funny too, because writing a book or speaking publicly about some authority with try to speak with, is not without risk. It's, either. it's risky business. And just being on point <laughs> as a cop or a soldier, there's risk involved. I, I think you'd look a lot smarter if you keep your mouth shut. That's right. So here we're doing the opposite. So, I appreciate you being willing to take this type of risk. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, I'm happy to be here. This is amazing. Matt Flynn on a couple of weeks ago with a podcast, and he talks about his sobriety. Uh -huh. Matt is just a wonderful man that works quietly yeah. about his mission and help with that. And I really had to pull him out of that role to help me communicate that. And that's one of the things I admire about him is his willingness to talk about his experience. Yeah. And then... So anyway, that gives us a little, uh, a little room to make some mistakes here. Yeah. So one thing you just said, which was interesting, is we shouldn't necessarily make that assumption. And, and I haven't been in the military, but I, you can see where that rigidity is really uh, well-purposed. Mm -hmm. And in law enforcement, boy, you really have to use a lot more discretion. You do. And um, apply things differently. Yeah. So that's one difference. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's all relative, too. You know, anyone who has only experienced one or the other depending on the, you know, the information that they're working with, they might think a different way of it. But, uh, I think that's, I think generally speaking, that's the case. How about the Academy? I think that's funny. Not all police departments have an Academy like yeah. big police departments do for obvious reasons. We hire 40 at a time, for example, mm -hmm. but when they're yelling at you, uh, and, you must have heard this thing. It's nothing. You don't scare me. We've got yeah, cops that, are, that were army rangers and stuff like that. And I almost yeah. think where the rest of us believe that we were about to get fired at any moment. Yeah. You're thinking, yeah, I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my academy experience was a good one. I enjoyed it. And it, it, it is funny that you say that because it's once you get to a certain point in the military, um, I think that you just realize that it doesn't matter. You know, it, it's a... Uh, that that sort of stress, that sort of like artificial urgency that somebody can induce by yelling at you or having you do push-ups or whatever. At some point, you learn 
to sort of flip the switch and just kind of enjoy the chaos, you know? And, and I think it was, uh, I think it's, it, it was, it was interesting in the police Academy because believe me, the Academy challenged me in many ways, sure. but, um, having somebody yell at me or, you know, some type of physical yeah. activity just wasn't one of them. Yeah. And I think it, it was funny to watch how my peers and then also, um, the people facilitating the different things, how they would kind of react to that and observe different, uh, you know, different at different points. That's a good point. And I'm actually grateful that I had a police Academy and I actually feel sorry for, uh, cops, if they've oh, never been a cop before, yeah, entering law enforcement without a police academy. Absolutely. What about what when you were a new police officer? What were some of the things you had to unlearn, maybe because you were a soldier? I think um, you know the and going back to kind of the parallels, police and military really um, really share discipline. You know, that's something discipline, courage. There's all those things that are very much shared, but uh, I think. It was it was challenging for me to understand, to to really fully understand and embrace the idea of discretion. Because in in the military, you you have some of that. You know, uh, I was eventually a company commander in the Army National in the you know Minnesota National Guard, and at that rank and that position, you have quite a bit of discretion. But um, it's different. You know, we might refer to it in the military as um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Disciplined initiative. Uh, you know, you, you have the ability to make decisions based on what your high, that higher echelon is, is telling you. And, but it, it, working as a police officer at that lowest level, you have much more of not only the ability to kind of work outside the box, but you actually have an obligation hmm. and it's, it's much different. I've always thought that being a police officer is kind of like, uh, maybe similar to or equivalent to being a sergeant in the military. Say something about discipline, just to remind everybody that discipline, at least in law enforcement, has kind of two meanings. Uh, discipline as far as um, being, uh, being you know, told you did something wrong and there's some ramifications yeah. from that, but the mental discipline. Um, yeah, uh, and I guess when I'm... When I'm when I think of discipline or when I was referring to discipline, I'm thinking of, you know, completing the mission, completing the task. If my job is to take an auto theft report, then I want to make sure I get all the details. I want to make sure that the victim feels like I took care of them. I want to make sure that, you know, I've checked all those boxes on collecting evidence, that type of thing. Uh, so I think whether it's, whether you're in the military or whether you're working as a police officer, it's important and, and, Generally speaking, both soldiers and police officers have that ability to kind of put whatever that task is ahead of themselves. Oh, I like that. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, so that they, because uh, some people probably come into law enforcement really, relatively undisciplined. People probably. that were in the military maybe came into the military undisciplined. Yeah. And they hugely, you know, they were in, like you said, in high school, a little bit rudderless or whatever oh, yeah. word you used. That was me. I can picture you with long hair, maybe. I mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah, you got it right. <laughs> yeah, that was. Pretty, I think you got a clear picture of where I was. Oh, okay, at. and then, uh, boy, those are really bad kids, oh. long hair and skateboards. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, and then just the 
you welcomed. And actually, I like what you said earlier, that you felt challenged and thought, you know, I think I can challenge myself more. You kind of like that feeling, like how it cleared your head. It like yeah. pointed you in a direction. And, and it was a long process. I think for the first, you know, and, and everyone's journey is different, but it was, it was uh, well over a year into my military service um, until I started to feel like, okay, this is, you know, I'm doing this right. It, it felt almost like a prison sentence or something initially. Oh, I mean, very challenging, yeah. very far outside of my comfort zone. But I think that's where you improve. And becoming a police officer, also challenging in different ways. But the I think that people who, people, police officers already know this and families of police officers know this. But what I think it's hard for many people to understand is the, the sacrifice, you know, emotionally, and uh, the mental strain that that police officers are under when they're having to make decisions, and um, you know when they're having to uh, having to deal with those constant stressors of just trying to do the best they can to serve. Certainly. Well, you know, and I think too, one of the experiences of being a police officer that is parallel to soldier is the willingness to self-sacrifice. Yes. For um, the benefit of the group. Yeah. And um, I. It, like I told you, for whatever reason, I, I know that my, uh, all, I have four brothers, and I know uh, that all, most of them are older than me, except for one, and my dad worried that we'd all end up in Vietnam. Um, and I don't remember, if, and my dad was a World War II vet, but I remember later thinking, why didn't I join the military at one point? It just never occurred to me. And, and, and one of the things I'm grateful for being a police officer is I felt like I got as close to that as I can, serving my country, uh, le- willing to learning those skills about self-sacrifice, oh, yeah. confronting danger, um, learning about what uh, what it means to be a warrior, what it means to be a guardian. Yeah, kind of exploring that in myself, and and then and then having leadership roles in the police department, exploring it even deeper. Then, so, yeah. Um, all right, so that is some of what, what else? You, so I, I don't know if I interrupted you. You were talking about some th- thoughts you had, even on the way over, maybe about parallels. and. Yeah, well, it's, so, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, just a challenging topic because there's so many different ways that the two kind of mix and intertwine. Um, <clears throat> yeah, thinking back, um, thinking back on the process of going through the academy, going out on FTO, I mean, that's, it's really a challenging one. I, I thought in a lot of ways, I thought that I had seen everything in the military and that there's nothing, you know, that's going to really challenge me. And that's just not true at all. When you, uh, when a police officer is, uh, you know, out working patrol, taking calls, it's kind of like going on a deployment every time you go on a shift, every time, um, you know, you're, you're available for service. It's kind of like a mini deployment and you go through a lot of the same emotions and things, you know, and, and something else that I, I just remembered that we were kind of talking about, um, was, uh, oh boy, I just lost it. <laughs> it was brilliant though, whatever I it was. Said. I'm sure it was really good. Yeah, it blew your what mind. What were we just talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what did you, well, it, maybe it'll come back to you. It, it will. Um, you said talking about FTO, 
So doing field training for officers, that's post-academy, and then they're out with a senior officer in some yeah. kind of way of gradually increasing their role. I know that one of the things other cops are watching for new cops is this, and uh, I think you probably had this advantage if your history was known, and that is, as a cop, even a new cop, are you able and willing to lean, lean into trouble, lean into yes. troublemakers? I think they summarize it, are you willing to fight? Yes. And, and, it, and it's not fighting is necessarily what we're talking about, no. but willing and able to, to go hands-on yeah. and commit to a and, physical encounter. And you just circled right back around to what I was trying to remember. But when you're, whether you're in, whether you're in the, the military or, or a police officer, there's this part of you, and it's really, it's, an, it's a necessary kind of um, character uh, attribute to be able to, put the team ahead of yourself. We were, we were already kind of talking about that earlier, but when, when things go bad and whether it's like a physical fight or whether it's just some kind of a high stress event, you know, something all the way up to, to a life and death kind of situation, it's really important. And, and I think, I think even necessary that you put your own personal safety kind of secondary to the team you don't want to let your partner down anytime that that things have gotten really rough, whether it's overseas serving in combat or whether it's uh, on the city streets. You, you when when things go bad, you don't think, oh, boy, I hope I don't get hurt or I hope I make it home tonight. You're thinking I don't want to let my partner down. You know, you're thinking maybe I don't want to let this victim down. And that's the mentality. And what and I think we might summarize that as a higher purpose. And, yeah. And higher higher purpose allows you to not only endure difficulty but actually willingly take it on. Yeah. I can think of a parallel. Now I'm not a SWAT cop, but I've certainly done active shooter training and, mm -hmm. and cleared buildings and such. You know, when you're uh, are you on the SWAT team? Mm -hmm. When you're going down a hallway, how if you say in a formation of three cops, how the one cop on the side um, does that blocking where they turn towards oh, yeah. the, the door or uh, mm -hmm. because they're, they're thinking I need to protect this cop behind me. And if I take around, I hope it hits me square in the chest. Yes. You know, um, and so I always think of that. I mean, that's just such a it, that's such a you, as a cop in training, you're like, I get that. Oh, yeah. that's important. I'll do that. Yes. Yeah. I being think to, the, to the casual observer, like. You're actually positioning yourself to get struck <laughs> around, and you're hoping it hits you in the spot that's most favorable to you. I yeah. get that, but um, so yeah, anyway, it's that's a, a parallel, maybe. And it, and it's a it, yeah, it's really something that um, I think that people in our profession sort of just take that for granted. Um, but I think that for people who aren't as familiar with the the police or military culture, it's something that is hard to even understand, you know, just thinking of yourself as kind of like a cog in the machine mm -hmm. and you, you've got that position to play. Um, and you're having to rely on someone else. Sometimes being, being able to step up and be able to being able to play your position isn't even the hardest part, but learning to rely on someone else, you know, I'm watching this threat area. So now I'm relying on my brother or sister to watch my back. Well, when, and then as well, when you are what that's the thing about area responsibility. So as you, as a cop, 
you identify your area of responsibility mm -hmm. and you maintain that because you know others are relying on you yeah. to maintain that area of responsibility. What do you think of this? You said cog in a machine, and, and a lot of people have that image of soldiers in a, in a, in maybe, maybe correctly, but I want to ask you about a thought I have. Um, and I could, you know that this podcast and my interests often are in the area of health and well-being, mental health issues for cops and such. Yeah, and thank you for all the, the good that you do, by the way. Oh, you're, it's incredible. Uh, glad to do it. Yeah, right? it's amazing. Uh, I feel really grateful to be in this position. Um, so, uh, and, then, and then sometimes we think of cop stress and such as maybe the big flash bang, big event, but you, you and I know a lot of the distress comes to what we might call the slow burn. Oh, yeah. Repeated exposures to the suffering of others, uh, even shift work and stuff like that. One of the areas I'm kind of interested in, and see get your opinion on this because I draw a parallel to soldiering, is the transition between the different worlds that cops live. Um, maybe we'll call it a home life or a personal life and then their work life. And um, in some ways, it's really unlike a soldier in that, um, you know, a soldier may spend long periods in a battle zone, in a danger zone. Yeah. And then... Um, for a police officer, you know, like a 24-hour cycle, they cycle between maybe uh, a little bit of a warrior, a guardian mindset, in, in potential real danger for periods, and then they go home, and then they help their kids with homework, and then they sleep in their own bed, and they do it again. Yeah. And they do that year after year. And I was thinking, what if soldiers on a deployment, they'd be in the battle zone, maybe even in a firefight, and they'd, do, they'd be in that mode for eight 10 hours, yeah. and then magically they flew home, and they had uh, ate supper with the family, helped the kids with homework, maybe helped coach soccer, slept oh, yeah. in your own bed, and woke up and went back to the battle zone. And what if police officers um, in small groups were deployed uh, to Frogtown for, uh, or some neighborhood uh, for long periods of time, and um, you know they kept watch as they slept in abandoned garages, and they yeah. did that. So just as a comparison, I, do you think it's do you think it would be harder potentially to be a police officer and try to move in and out of that, I don't know, vigilance in a twenty four hour cycle year after year, or it is in a soldier and go okay I'm in this for. It is absolutely months. a double edged sword. It's so interesting that you brought that up because I I vividly remember serving overseas going on these. Convo, uh, convoy escort team, um, you know, missions out on the road. And we would talk about, we'd almost fantasize about how cool it would be if we could go out here, we do our job, we get it on with the enemy when we need to, and then being able to just go home, you know, and talking about how, how amazing that would be to go put in a 12 hour shift. I mean, sometimes we were on the road for 20 plus hours at a time, um, but to be able to go do that, whatever it is, and then in the same day or week or month, go home. Cause I think one of the hardest things for me anyway, and I th I'm sure a lot of people shared this, one of the most difficult things about being deployed to combat is just that isolation, being away from your family. You know, people are growing older and they're experiencing life events and dying and you're not there. And it's, and you don't even realize the effect you, you know, the impact to some extent that it has on you, but you don't realize the impact that you've had on others until you finally return home. But then 
appreciating how it's, how this is a double-edged sword because for cops, you know, we generally have the luxury of being able to go home at the end of a shift. And just as you said, you go home and you talk to your family and you put the kids to bed and, but it's difficult though, isn't it? Cause those emotions and that, I mean, you, you leave it out on the field and now, um, you can't, uh, there's no good way to kind of unpack that stuff when you get back home. It's really hard. Well, I, I, I think what you just said and hearing you say it kind of back to me made me think, you know, sometimes there's a lot of focus on the um, uh, disadvantages of being a cop lately. Mm-hmm. And a lot of cops are kind of talking about that and that pressure. But there's a lot of advantages as there well is. and for a number of reasons. And I have a whole section in my book about the advantages at the end of the book. But... What you mentioned there, too, made me think, wow, cops can really leverage that ability to go home and uh, help coach soccer, uh, help the kid do do mundane household tasks that are important and actually very different than police work, you know, because you're tenderly caring for your kids or yelling at them or whatever needs to be done. Yeah. But you're in there. You got your head in that game, hopefully. And uh, it just reminded me that that is... That's a distinct advantage from just literally being deployed away yeah. in another country across an ocean yeah, and then missing out. And that was interesting, too, that you mentioned. And I think that's a parallel with for families that you come back and you realize the effect that you ha- your deployment had on your oh, loved ones. Because yeah. I know parents of people that are kids or army rangers or in, uh, you know, in the danger zone. And that, it's tough. That's tough on them. It is. And, it, and it's the same with families of law enforcement. I mean, you... As a police officer, especially, I think when when officers are are early on in their career, they tend to put their nose to the grindstone, and even on their off time, they're kind of living and breathing this culture, and you don't realize the impact that you're having on others all the time. Well, that's a good point, and we'll actually we'll do another podcast on that subject of loved ones because I can think of another topics. But you remind me of this one, and that is uh, when I talk to loved ones, like during our academy family night and such like that, I like to bring up the point, because you can easily imagine a loved one thinking that their officer loved one is in the danger zone the whole 10, 12-hour shift, Mm -hmm. 10-hour shift in our case, and then realize, you know, you guys have to know that there are times where they are uh, having coffee with other cops, yucking it up, they're in roll call making fun of each other, (laughs) they are writing a boring-ass theft from auto report with their boots off, yeah, you know, in a you, real safe spot. Yeah, so you, the loved ones should know that the cops aren't always in danger the whole time. That's right. And they may imagine that. And also, too, is often, not always, and we saw this recently, cops don't know they're in danger. They often know they're approaching danger. Yeah. You know, by the nature of the call, by yeah. the things they're observing. So um, it is good for loved ones to know that. And, and it I, is. And, and I imagine for soldiers, it's hard for loved ones to know that because you can't communicate in the same way. No, it's true. And, and you, we're, we're stumbling onto another parallel there because it's, it's that whole kind of idea of 99 point something percent of the time the job is boring, mm-hmm. you know, and then, uh, and then you have to be ready because the, the uh, action, so to speak, is going to come. And sometimes when you least expect it, some, a lot of times I, I found it interesting working as a police officer, how those calls that sound really like, Hey, this one, this is the big one here. A lot of times you show up and it ends up being a whole lot of nothing, but then you go to that call that, 
uh, sounds like it's just <laughs> going to be another, you know, yeah. gone on arrival. Right. Um, and then you just never know. Yeah, and that's a discipline officers need to do. Is, that's right. Um, I remember for me was um, making that huge mental adjustment that Kent uh, Williams talks about of learning appropriately to trust less and control more. Yeah, Because I didn't right. want to assume people thought like I did. Yeah. Uh, because they didn't, and it could be dangerous thinking. Mm -hmm. Something I think is really unique about your experience, and I don't know if you've had, I know you haven't had anything next to it, but to be in an hour-long sustained gun uh, firefight, that is, you know, yeah. I mean, maybe soldiers, have, other soldiers have had that experience, but that is really a remarkable experience. It I is. I mean, did you have a sense that this was, I don't know, what, oh. what kind of sense did you have about time during that? Well, you know, um, what a great question. Cause it, it's, uh, there, I can tell you there's 15 other soldiers that understand and can appreciate it. Um, if, uh, if any of those guys are listening to this podcast, it was an honor to serve with them. I can't wait to talk to, to any of those guys again. Cause this was really a, a life changing event as you can imagine. But, um, it was, it was like, you know, all of those kind of classic, um, symptoms of the car crash with the tunnel vision and the loss of fine motor function and kind of the, um, you know, rapid thoughts and auditory exclusion, all those things that you hear about, every bit of it was there and it was there for almost an hour straight. Um, I've never experienced anything like that. I don't expect to ever experience anything so intense. Um, and you know, it was, uh, as far as time, it was really, we just were kind of lost. I think, um, we had, uh, I guess I had a rough idea of how much time had gone by, but, um, it was really a, a really disorienting kind of, a experience from a, from a time, you know, perspective. Cause the only thing that mattered was right now. Well, I, that's really interesting. Um, you know, the, the, audit, the um, sensory distortions and yeah. such. And one of the things, so I meet with every, I meet with every officer has been in, officer-involved shootings from an employee assistance point of view. And one thing I notice about officers is sometimes I believe, and this is from my own experience with critical incidents or other intense uh, work-related experiences, is that they require super focus. Mm -hmm. And with super focus, that means you do not focus on certain things. Yeah. And uh, when you kind of get back to a safe spot, you kind of start to repopulate your full brain. And then you notice there's gaps and crooked lines maybe in your memory or your recall. Yeah. And that can be very um, unsettling to police officers, I know. I mean, yours was sustained. And what I often reassure them about is that some of those gaps and crooked lines are an indication of a high-functioning brain, not a low-functioning brain. Because mm -hmm. they sometimes, and I remember early in my ambulance work, I thought something was wrong with me, that I thought I was a bit defective. And now I realize I was just having sensory distortions. Mm -hmm. I was having the effects of adrenaline that I learned to not have later on, that kind of stuff. But I actually thought something was wrong with me. And, and uh, when you, let me just talk about that um, Silver Star event one more time. And that is, I, I'm interested just from, from the critical incident point of view for our officers, when did you first get into the most safe spot that you're in? I mean, like, what I mean, when did you get in a real area of safety? How long did that take? And do you remember, did you have physical symptoms and 
sleep to sleep problems. Absolutely. Like yeah. I, so I remember um, that that firefight took place sometime around 11 p.m., something like that. I don't remember exactly. Uh, I think I was in bed by then. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and it, so when from the time we were done and it was about I actually had a uh, an army captain that was riding with me um, as just kind of like a, we would do these kind of like VIP escorts. It was somebody who was tagging along who was going to do a similar job as to what I was doing and was just becoming kind of acquainted with what uh, what all that was about. Probably, I'm sure, didn't expect anything like what he witnessed, but it was on one hand it was good that he was there we had he was the only commissioned officer that was president that was present um for this event and um at the time i was a, a staff sergeant and he um started his stopwatch when we were something like uh five or ten minutes into it and that's how we got an idea i'm sure there's other ways we could have could have figured it out but that's how we we determined that it was something like 50 to 60 minutes of sustained gunfire anyway when that was done um we drove for probably at least an hour maybe a couple hours until we made it to the next forward operating base and uh we were just absolutely destroyed i mean guys were physically we we were you know everyone had their limbs and um you know we were we were physically okay but it just as far as like exhaustion what were you um, say about limbs we nobody nobody was missing any oh, fingers or toes. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, what we had seen, what we had witnessed, we had such close contact with the enemy. They were, uh, they had maneuvered all the way up to the ditches next to the vehicles. So I mean, they were within a stone's throw, literally, uh, of taking you know overrunning uh, our gun trucks and we're fending them off with hand grenades and small arms, and uh, you know just witnessing um all of that and just knowing how close we were to um to not making it i mean it was it's something that it takes time for your brain to kind of catch up like hey that really happened right i remember i'd quit smoking uh quite a a while you know i don't i don't remember how years i think before that firefight happened and i was sucking down cigarettes as soon as we got a chance to just anything to try to to soothe that adrenaline dump. Darn, it was interesting. so intense. Well, you had left the relative safety of your vehicles to, what did they call that? You exited, you, um, what is that called? You, you left the, you, you walked, you moved away from the vehicle. Would that, what would that be called? Yeah. Well, so we, we were in, um, we did have up armored gun trucks that provided, you know, uh, provided a level of protection for us and yeah many times i would have to dismount dismount and, yeah, okay. and move away um from that cover just to try to to maintain contact from unit to unit yeah we had i mean it was a as you can imagine it was a mess and you'd only do that in desperate situations yeah the radio the radio we we operated on several different radio channels not unlike the way police officers do and with with that amount of chaos unfolding in that area and with you know keep in mind the kind of the technological limitations too um there's not a repeater on every mud hut in iraq so you've got you know frequencies that are that are um, going in and out but uh, the radios were were almost useless 
um, with the exception of our internal network that was just closed to the those uh, 15 individuals, we were able to communicate really well. But as far as communicating from, you know, unit to unit with those other uh, friendly forces on the ground, it was almost impossible. So at several points during that firefight, I made a decision and others did too, to dismount um, for communication. And then also um, we had uh, one of our trucks, one of the the um, third country national semi trucks that we were escorting, one of those trucks was destroyed and, or we thought it was destroyed. So we had um, soldiers dismounting to address that. Um, dismounting to cross-level ammunition, uh, many different reasons. You know, there are many different reasons why we had to get outside of the safety of those vehicles. And once you see a few up-armored vehicles destroyed from an RPG or some other type of weapon system, an IED, um, you know, the the relative comfort of that of that armored vehicle is is kind of uh, limited anyway. Okay, that helps me understand that. Yeah, That's interesting. So I asked you to come and talk a little bit about. Um, the, the similarities and differences between soldiering and being a cop. Um, was there any that you thought of that I, we didn't talk about? So we can at least cover a couple of them, other ones. Boy, I'll probably think of some good ones on the car ride home. I bet you will. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's coming to mind. Like, I want to text Brian. Yeah, I'll shoot you a text at like 1 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's we'll, we'll we won't go into that anymore. We'll we'll say we did our best. Okay? Yeah, yeah. We'll have to just say we, we did our best. Couple amateurs. <laughs> um, let me ask you a couple things. Um, first, I want to say something about uh, um, before we go. That if the audience enjoyed this podcast, if they want to read more about Chad Malmberg, um, you can you can uh, do an internet search and you'll find some interesting stuff. Yeah. And also, I'm, he's going to give me a website too in a minute. But you might also be interested in my book, which is called Good Cop, Good Cop, a Get Healthy, Stay Healthy Guide for Law Enforcement, where we cover a range of topics, including critical incidents. Um, and uh, you can purchase the book on Amazon. Or you can go to my website, which is goodcopgoodcop.com. Um, I'll tell you what, Chad, I want you to, uh, t can you tell us a little bit about Storm Training Group? Yeah, I would love to. So Storm Training Group is um, a company that provides training for law enforcement, corrections, first responders. Uh, it, uh, it's myself and, and I'm partnered with two other excellent instructors. One of them is um, Tom Metton. I work with him uh, both it, with this company and then also with the police department. He's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and he's an amazing instructor. Um, we've got another guy, um, Sean Zahar. He's a nationally ranked Golden Gloves boxer. He's got a PhD in criminal justice. He teaches uh, as an adjunct professor with Rasmussen College. So the three of us have kind of developed this system of defensive tactics and we think it's the best thing out there. You know, um, we've slowly and kind of methodically figured out what cops need to stay safe and not only um, from the perspective of curriculum, but how can we communicate this now in a way that police officers who maybe aren't into DT, maybe they think of DT as like a, um, that's not something that, that they're excited about or passionate about, but how can we communicate these skills 
in a way that's efficient and useful to them. And I think we really are on to something. Um, we're in the middle of a, a five-day instructor course right now. We've got 25 different cops from three states. They're instructors of police officers that come through and gain a certification through us. We're getting really good feedback. People are telling us routinely that this stuff is working, that it's helping them do their job, and that they enjoy doing the training. And all of that is amazing. Uh, on top of that, we're trying to branch out and we're trying to find, uh, you know, kind of diversify our training portfolio and bring on other people that are passionate about things that, that cops need to learn. Well, what's the, ad what's the web address? Stormtraininggroup.com. Yeah, that's a great place. If you want to learn more about what we do, there's more information on there about my bio and tons of photos and videos and stuff. I would really encourage people, even if training's not your thing or defensive tactics isn't your thing, take a look at it. I think uh, you'd be you'd be pleasantly surprised at Well, if you're a police officer or if you are, especially if you're in a patrol capacity, it has to become your thing. It does. It has to be. Yeah. Because one, for a number of reasons, it'll make you more effective. It'll actually make your use of force more maybe selective. Yes. And... Uh, you know, what do we call it at work? Uh, RRA, what is that? Response to resistance and aggression. Right. Yeah. I always reject when there's more words. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but It's uh, a kind the, of a mouthful. Um, so I do that as part of, as because I'm a sworn person at the police department, and you and the other men that you mentioned do that training. It's really impressive, really excellent. Thank you. And it's, I don't know how close it is to the storm combative, but it's the same instructors mm -hmm. and their willingness to... Uh, and I actually like the fact that we do uh, the fundamentals over and over. My mm -hmm. wife has tried to, make, to learn, have him take the dance classes, you know. Yeah. And they always move too quick, and I get discouraged. <laughs> um, so I like that we just repeat some of the fundamentals over and again. Yeah. From, uh, well, we've used... You guys do that in a way that is so, what would you call it, on, on, not offensive, uh, really cooperative attitude. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Really we, straightforward. Talking about parallels, you know, we've tried to kind of, in a way, mimic or match what the range does. We've got such an amazing firearms program with the city. Um, and, you know, we've tried to kind of, in, in a way, uh, bring our, our program up to that level where people realize that it's important. Uh, they believe in the effectiveness of it. And, and also they enjoy doing it. Yeah. I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot in whether it's police or military culture, sometimes we don't, we don't worry about whether or not it's palatable for the end user. You know, we just, you're supposed to do it. So you yeah. got to do it. Yeah. Well, why not, if we can, why not make it enjoyable? So people become more passionate or at least they don't hate it as much, right. you know? I, well, I, I totally agree. I like it a lot. Um, I'll tell you, this is what I'm thankful for. I am really thankful that you survived that uh, firefight and that you and the other soldiers came out physically unscathed. So I'm really grateful for that. Thank you. I'm grateful that you're at the St. Paul Police Department and the work you're doing there. And and now I'm glad that you're making me look better by being on this podcast. Yeah, I hope you'll have me back. This was great. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, thanks for coming. Anything we should add before we finish? All right. We did a good job. All right. Thank thanks, you. Brian.